being able to be vulnerable is a key part of building relationships. I think the golden rule is people need people mm. cannot do it alone, no matter how much we are programmed to take on everything. And it doesn't have to be a partner that's part of your community. Start networking and building relationships with other parents. It's those fireside chats, so to speak, or you're at an event and you're like, holy cow, it was so hard to get here this morning. Or I don't know how you shuttle people from practice to practice. Trust me, even though, like you said, people are like, oh my God, how can I do it if she doesn't? When you really open yourself and talk to people about mm, things, right. that will all disappear. You're listening to The Big Asian Energy Show, where every week we interview Asian experts, move makers, and ceiling breakers to uncover their secrets to success so we can help you reach your greatest potential. I'm your host, John Wang. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Big Asian Energy. Today, I have with me Dr. Stephanie Wong. She's an Asian-American licensed clinical psychologist and entrepreneur, BTS Army, and host, actually, of the award-winning Colors of Success podcast. She works in private practice with tech professionals, most of which are ethnic minorities, at a hospital serving military veterans. And her training in clinical interviewing has led to fireside chats with diverse podcast guests about advancing their careers and addressing mental health and cultural identities. Her guests have been absolutely everywhere, and there's so many incredible human beings that are on the show, and she has been featured in Forbes, U.S. News, Shondaland. So let me start by thinking, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be a guest on this show, and your energy is amazing. Obviously, big Asian energy. Shout out to Tover for connecting us. So I'm super grateful to have this synergy between us. Topher is one of our team members and the co-founders of many of projects that I'm working on. And I'm so stoked to be with him. Before we jumped into the podcast recording, we're having a whole conversation about a book that you're working on. Can you just repeat what you just said or just give us <laughs> a little bit? What is this idea that you're working through? The working title is Cancel the Filter. And it is a book about personal experiences, professional experiences as a working mom, a woman mm -hmm. of color. And as you saw in my bio, which is a very kind bio, I work at a hospital full-time private practice, podcasting, and I have two young girls who mm -hmm. are just amazing human beings. Thank you to my husband for helping me with that. <laughs> but people ask me all the time, how do you do it? You're superwoman. Mm -hmm. And I say, I'm 20 seconds from losing my shit all the time. Like this, these eyelashes are my superwoman cape. It doesn't look like this all the time. It takes me time to get ready. It takes me time to get in the mental space to do all the things. Yesterday, I was volunteering. The day before, I went to a sugar concert, BTS. I have a lot of fun in my life. And then there are a lot of ups and downs that I think need to be normalized among parents, not just working moms, but parents in general, to let them know that you are not alone. You are not the one showing up to work with baby spit or milk or anything. You're not the only one. People mm -hmm. do it all the time. <laughs> and I love that because I need to give a shout out. In my experience working, especially with a lot of Asian American parents and their kids, I got to say, you guys do not have an easy job. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> no. like, I'm legitimately sometimes wondering if you guys are wizards because it almost seems like you have to have 
eight arms and a time machine just to balance it. You have all these different obligations and everything like that, and you're 20 seconds from losing. The acknowledgement of and the vulnerability is so courageous. But that aside, how do you do it? Because I think that a lot of parents do feel like they're almost underwater at all times. I think one of the key things is really finding hobbies that don't have anything to do with making money. I think a lot of Asian Americans, Asians think, how am I going to monetize this? How am I going to monetize this situation? Like I mentioned to you, I have so much fun in my life. And Mm. part of it is I worked with someone who very early on my career passed away shortly after retirement. And I said, I'm not going to wait till I retire to do the things that I want to do. Mm. Everything is very planful in that of sure, like making money is very important for the lifestyle that I want to live, traveling and taking my kids to different countries and my family. But it's not about just building wealth and doing nothing with it and waiting till I'm like 65 to go and travel the country when right now I'm mentally and physically able to do those things. The second thing, which is probably more important, is picking a partner and choosing to commit to that partner that will support you. That is your ride or die. It goes both ways. My husband and I are high school sweethearts. We're celebrating 23 years on the 30th. Wow. That I think that dated me and showed my age. But <laughs> the point why I'm bringing this up is because he is someone who is a feminist, but won't say he is. <laughs> but he has two girls, lives with all women, cooks for my mom, cooks for all of us, does the pickups and drop offs, does the laundry. To not care about strict gender roles is so mm-hmm. important because it's teaching my daughters what a respectful partner will do. It's not just the man is the breadwinner. And women can work, women can do those things. But I want to be very clear, it takes a huge support network to Mm -hmm. be able to do the things that I want to do in my career. It's so important. First of all, congratulations. 23 years is an accomplishment in this day and age in and of itself. And I'm curious, as you said, gender roles are a big thing. I know I deal with a lot of men's work. I have an Asian American men's group and these kinds of topics come up all the time. And it's such a big thing. Was there any challenge or conflict that came up when you guys were having that early stage negotiation of who's going to do what? No challenge when it came to me and him. But for the longest time, my mother-in-law, even when I had the baby, when we lived with them, she was like, why don't you stay home and he go back to, he just works. I said, Mm -hmm. mom, I make more money than him. (laughs) That doesn't really fiscally make sense. But in all seriousness, I think over the years, she's really seen the shift and how important Mm -hmm. work is for me and how that really keeps a very healthy, happy family. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes it is about self-advocacy and standing up because we really have to unlearn a lot of these things. My mother-in-law was going to be a lawyer in Vietnam, but when she immigrated over here, things completely changed and she raised like so many children and helped out every single... like. All the siblings build their businesses and stuff. And I wonder if she had a different choice being here, would that still be the case? So I think it's more about many people didn't have the options back then to even consider having flexible gender roles because that's, again, cultural transmission of values. Absolutely. And I think so many of these things we talk about today, ideas of gender roles and such, and that choice to take on and choose, these are the values I want to have. These are my parents' values, something wrong with them. They were necessary and oftentimes like imposed upon them. 
But now I have the freedom and luxury, thanks mom and dad, for providing me with this platform where I can now create my own values and choosing that. There's a word that you used just now, which is self-advocacy. Can you dive into that a little bit more? It is speaking up for yourself and making sure that you're maintaining your boundaries. Because I think a lot of times, especially the way that societal messages happen, it's the meek Asian American woman who should just, this extends beyond being Asian American woman or person, that you keep your head down and you just work. And when people throw a whole bunch of crap at you, you should just take it. We're trying to climb whatever ladders and why stir the pot, why rock the boat. At the same time, I always ask, what is the cost to doing that? Emotionally, Mm. you're sitting there, you could build resentments. It can manifest in very physical ways, which we often see mental health issues manifest in that way for Asian Americans when they go to like ER for stomach problems, or they feel like they can't breathe, or they're having a heart attack when it really is a panic attack. So I think it's so important to speak up when you feel like your boundaries are being crossed, or something is not sitting right with you. Again, Mm -hmm. this is very privileged from a very privileged perspective, because we'll go into times when I really didn't feel like I had that power to do that based on where I was in my career. But I feel like as you get older, that you give less, <laughs> less of an F. <laughs> we yeah, just swear exactly. On Swearing accepted yeah. podcast. <laughs> you don't give a shit about what yeah. <laughs> people think about. And I don't envy my kids now because when I volunteered, I heard some of the boys like talking and I was like, oh God, this is annoying. I asked the girls, did you have fun? And they're like, and then there's four boys in front of them who are like, and I was like, oh, oh my God, I do not miss this, <laughs> this realm the, of my the life. the teachable moment happening, guys. And you said that earlier on in your career, you ran into these experiences. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Absolutely. When I was going through my PhD, my supervisors thought I had senioritis. And really, I was pregnant. And I didn't want to tell anybody. My first pregnancy was really hard. I was going through a pre-doc internship a residency, trying to study for my exams, you name it. It was a very stressful time. And I didn't feel like I really wanted to disclose it that early. And I didn't know this at the time. Again, this was a long time ago that many pregnancies result in miscarriage. And that's why we wait that first trimester to tell people. I wasn't so much worried about that, but just like I was afraid of perceptions of how people would see me. I had kids way younger than a lot of my friends, I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, they're going to catch up in a few years. Nope, they're having their second, third babies now. And I'm like, I don't have to clean up (laughs) diapers or shit no more. (laughs) Joke's on you, but no. But that was a really difficult time. And none of my cohort mates were having children at that time. So it was something that I felt very lonely about. And I felt forced to tell that supervisor that I was pregnant. And it was not a good feeling. Now, if someone said that, I'd be like, dude, I'm pregnant. Give me a break. (laughs) But at the time, you really relied on these folks to write you letters of recommendation. They held part of your future in their hands to progress. And that power dynamic is just so important for managers Mm. to be aware of because you may not think that you're misusing or abusing your power, but it's really, if you're stifling someone to be mm. able to tell you something or work at that full capacity, be more curious than mm. judgmental. Absolutely. That's great advice. And coming back to this, you were talking about 
what it feels like to be a working parent and trying to Superman everything, right? Or superwoman everything, trying to take on all the stuff in your back and everything like that. A big part of what I see is like inner perfectionism. There's this belief that I have to do everything because one, you have an amazing partner. But a lot of times I do hear from parents who are like, who don't have that type of relationship or sometimes they're just doing it all. And this is something that I hear so often is if I don't do this, it doesn't get done. There's this weight that gets carried. And I'm curious, how do you deal with one, that sense of I got to overachieve and be perfect or else I'm not enough so that I can self-advocate or even just that constant feeling of I can't take a breath. How do you coach people through that? I think part of it is understanding and having realistic expectations. I talk about this a lot with my clients about really assessing their values in multiple areas of your life. Am I doing things that are consistent with my values or inconsistent? These priorities and values shift all the time. Values are aspirational. Goals are achievable. It's if you want to have a loving relationship with your partner, you can't just say, I love you. And oh my God, we have a great relationship and we're done. I, was hoping I, I wish it was easy. I think I'd be out of a job if that were the case. But the whole thing is it's a work in progress. And sometimes yeah. these values in terms of prioritization change. I'm thinking when parents have empty nest, for instance, you're not going to be volunteering for everything at their school because that's not what it's about. So other things may take precedence over that. And it is a constant balance and discussion, but I really go back to self-compassion and empathy because we're very hard on ourselves. As you mentioned, we tend to be harder on ourselves than other people. And so just as you would talk to someone else, try talking to yourself that way. And it really does change the way that you see yourself. And I have really had to let go of perfectionism over mm. time and embrace that my life is chaotic and that's okay. I'm just trying to make it like everybody else. I don't think I'm any different from anybody mm. else. And I think when people see that from others in the community or people that they think are perfect or like really well put together, they can see that, again, they're not alone. People yeah. have their off days and it really is a difficult journey. I love that. Being perfectly imperfect, that yes. wherever we're at, that's where we're at. I think even when we say something like the acceptance of that, personally, I sometimes when I have to remind myself like, no, this is just where I'm at. I'm going to be mm -hmm. messy today. I'm going to be imperfect today. And that's fine. There's a part of me, and I think that's my inner critic talking, that kind of comes up and being like, this feels like giving up. And it's mm -hmm. such a challenging thing. Like I have days where I go, but that feels like giving up, where I have to remind myself that it's not. Everybody's a work in progress. I love the quote that you had, that values are aspirational, goals are achievable. I think that sums it up so beautifully. And coming back to that, self-advocacy. And a lot of people we talk to are in workplaces, offices, corporate, and self-advocacy is a big one. We aren't taught as Asian Americans to self-advocate. We're taught the opposite. Head down, keep working, stay quiet. How do you teach self-advocacy? Going back to that, I think establishing what your boundaries are. Mm -hmm. What are you willing to accept? We use a term called radical acceptance of what can you do? What can you control in this very complicated environment because we can't control other people's behaviors or reactions. What is realistic for us to control our environment? Especially when you're testing out your boundaries and self-advocating, 
you want to start very small in low risk situations. You don't want to go straight to your VP of a company and be like, you have overstepped your boundary with me. (laughs) You want to build up to that if that's what you essentially want to do. But even trying it with loved ones is Mm. really helpful. I tell them, blame me all the time. Just say, Dr. Wong told me to work on my boundaries. (laughs) Blame me less as time goes on. Try to practice it in situations that don't feel like I'm going to lose my job or something like that. Mm. You can test it out with a coworker who you're close with, but maybe giving you a whole bunch of work that doesn't feel that you need to attend to as opposed to someone else doing it. Or maybe we don't have that meeting on Zoom or telehealth or whatever. We send an email. Those are like small things that you can do that can help you build up to making bigger asks. I think a big misperception is just because you have a boundary and you try to enforce it, that people are going to readily accept it. If you have worked and operate it in a way that you do keep your head down and don't say anything. When you do say something, you might get pushback. They're like, mm-hmm. what's wrong with you? And that's why sometimes it's helpful to say those process comments. I'm working on my boundaries. I'm trying to like work on my mental health and give myself space. Again, if you feel comfortable. Wow. So you advise people to use those actual lines and saying, hey, I'm just I'm practicing my boundaries right now. This is what I'm working on. And that's why I'm saying no. One thing I really enjoyed that you just said was how it's okay to find skills. Kind of if a Zoom meeting is just I just can't can't today, I can't hand that. You're allowed to send an email and be like, hey, can we just get this done through email? Can we just get this Mm -hmm. done through a team chat? A big thing I feel like for many of us is that feeling that we lack permission. And I don't know if you read the book, Permission to Come Home, also written by a fellow psychologist and Asian American psychologist. But I love the word in that title, permission. And I feel like many of us don't feel like we have the permission to ask for that boundary. Do you have any idea of where that's from? Is that something that's particular, more so particular to Asian Americans, or is it across the board? I think there's a cultural transmission of who would you ask permission to? We are brought up to, I wouldn't even say obey. There's a filial piety, right? This respect that's built in of like your parents are the authority figures, whether or not they're authoritarian, Mm -hmm. they are still your authority figures. You respect them, you respect the elders. And sometimes like they're very wacky suggestions that they're giving you, but you can't (laughs) say that to them just because culturally it's very rude. And to them, it might be very hurtful. If you grow up with that, if you're giving those messages, it's really hard to then go to corporate America where someone has this like big wig title or a doctorate or whatever you want to call it Mm. to actually challenge folks in those situations. Because again, I found it very weird, not weird, but I found it different. We can edit out abnormal, but very different when some of my colleagues called each other by their first name, even though we're all doctors. Now it's a little different with patients. We do that just in general to be able to communicate like professionalism and things like that. But I was never taught that. Like when I approached adults in my life Mm -hmm. as those auntie, uncle, cousin, Mm -hmm. if they're like older, even though They're probably not my blood relatives. (laughs) And if it's not, Mr., Mrs., Doc, whatever, (laughs) that permission is not built into how we were brought up anyways, myself. 
Growing up, I think that it's such a top-down cultural teaching. That's mm -hmm. such a core teaching is that like you're here, the world is looking for is duty. There's yes. this familial duty, not just to your own immediate family, like your parents, it's almost like upwards to the greater community as well. And that could be so heavy to carry for us. Aside from topics like this, are there any other struggles that you find that many of your Asian American clients that you run into? have? You, is there a trend that you've seen? There are a lot of imposter syndrome, and I know you're big on that. There's so Let's much. Talk. Yeah, there's so much <laughs> imposter syndrome, right? And like, yeah. I think that's a barrier too to having yeah. those boundaries because yeah. it's like, who am I to speak up about this? Or do I even have the skills to be a manager? Mm -hmm. Or even if I'm an informal manager to direct, a lot of people in the Bay Area, they come right out of college and they're thrown into these team leads, manager positions. And I can't even imagine being thrown right out of college and having to manage people. It takes years of practice and missteps to be able to effectively manage people and build relationships. That is a huge one. I'll bet. Because you have to, and suddenly you're in a role where you're managing people who are older than you. And that's also a cultural value for us too. It's the idea of, oh, you have to always respect your elders. And in walks in Bob, who is 20 years your senior, 15 years more experience, has a PhD, and you're having to delegate work to them. And that could become yeah. a very challenging thing in a team meeting when they're going, no, this is not how we used to do it. So there's a dismissiveness. And it comes back to what you were talking about before of like setting the boundaries and clarifying that. I love that. And you don't want to erase people's experience, right? And mm. coming in, I'm going to change everything <laughs> because this is what I've seen in my PhD, MBA, whatever title mm. degree people have. It's all about the strength-based approach. What do mm. they have? What lived experiences or professional experiences do they have to add to this holistic health mm. piece, this approach? Mm. My biggest mentors in residency were... One was an addiction therapist. The other one was a health technician. And they had the live experiences of being recovering addicts. They were homeless before, had mental health issues. One of them served in Vietnam. They were talking to people in a very straightforward manner and even cussing sometimes. And I was like, whoa, mm. I wasn't in the psych books. <laughs> but it taught me a very important value because they would always say it very plainly. Mm. Why are these psychologists coming in? They didn't use the term psychobabble, but in a way that's what they were alluding to. It's not going to sink in. You have to mm. figure out a way to marry the theoretical and then the practical. I'm curious, at this stage, you've accomplished so much in your career and you're balancing so many different things. What would you say have been some of the biggest victories in your life so far? I thought a lot about this question, and I really think, first and foremost, raising my girls to be strong, being verbal, and reminding me that, that I need to take breaks. I've thought many times, yeah. hey, guys, I think I should quit the podcast this season. We're already in season five, so you know how wow. that went. My oldest was like, mommy, why? You love the podcast. And the best part of the podcast was being able to talk to her third grade class about mental health. And I tell this story a lot, but one of the girls was like, is Indian, so, you know, Asian Indian. And my mom says that she's very sad that she left home and all this. And I was like, that's really hard. And 
She was like, I also started a YouTube channel, only have four subscribers. And I was like, they're in third grade, John. You don't recognize in our day-to-day lives what these kids are truly dealing with. That was one of the best experiences that this podcast has done for me is being a special guest. I got to surprise my daughter because the teacher said, oh, come on the Zoom. Would you like to speak to the class? And my husband had her on and I was on the other computer at home and she was just, she lit up. She lit up. And so those moments are very important to me. Not personal achievement, more so like, how can I contribute to make this world, it sounds cheesy, but a better place for my kids? Because there's a lot of messed up stuff that are that's going on right now, right? And I think getting my PhD, and it's still... Actually, I'm very proud of this. <laughs> it's still in the cardboard envelope that I got it in years ago. <laughs> but why it's important to me is because yeah. none of my family went to a four-year college. My mom, my dad, my brother. I was just like a weirdo, right? Like in comparison. <laughs> but the point is that it took a lot of learning, mm-hmm. even about the process of education, how to fund my education. I didn't come from a wealthy family, so they couldn't just pay for my college. I worked at the same time as going to school. I moved Mm -hmm. to another state, again, with my now husband, but which was so key. But those difficulties that I went through and to be awarded that paper that kind of symbolized all the stuff that I went through, it was a miracle that someone like me and my background was able Mm -hmm. to navigate those systems and... Mm -hmm awarded that i i love those stories thank you for sharing those the third week class on the podcast i love that one but absolutely the challenges that you ran through and of course being able to pay for it would you say that was the biggest challenge that you ran through is finding the balance and that's an incredible accomplishment for anyone to get a phd of that caliber i would say passing my national exam shortly after having a c-section and giving birth (laughs) i was studying on my hospital bed Wow. And this is the stuff in the book. So I'm giving you a sneak peek. Oh, this, this is awesome. Is, yeah. yeah. This is why <laughs> it's so important to me to share these things because, yeah. again, you hear all these things in the news like, oh, this woman won a marathon or placed first place while she was like six months pregnant, whatever it is. But really, how hard is it to run every day being yeah. pregnant and practice? And I thought that I had a plan. I was going to take my test before the baby came. And be all good to give birth, take time. Nope. She wanted to come early. (laughs) Had to study on my hospital bed. During that time, I didn't think, oh my God, this is so hard. I just white knuckled it. But those are the things that need to be normalized is that this is what we face when we're going through these situations. Oh my gosh. What they say is the universe gives the only challenges that you can handle. Sometimes it's come on universe. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. I was very determined. I was like, we're doing this. Like, when can I get back out there? You know what I mean? Um, (laughs) But looking back, I think it was absolutely insane. (laughs) Uh, It sounds insane. As a parent, especially now and working on this book about parenting, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges that modern parents, like parents of today or would-be parents are facing? Maybe previous generations didn't. One, social media is huge. In the past, yes, bullying has been around for ages and ages, probably since their aggression is one of those things built into human nature. But now with social media being so widespread, kids are bullying each other on social media and adults too, you name it. And so that yeah. adds an extra layer. 
the other things are the state of the world that we live mm -hmm. in as Asian hate crimes have been skyrocketing, the way that people are overtly and obviously covertly being racist against people of color, hitting different communities against each other. And people don't necessarily know all the history, but for as long as our history was in coming to America, and it's been that way, we're pitted against different ethnic groups to fight for resources mm -hmm. when really we should be figuring out how to have some distribution of those resources and help each other build communities that are very integrative, helpful, regardless of any demographic. But that's a dream that myself, you, Topher, and everyone else mm -hmm. will continue to fight for. But I fear for my children, to be honest, to mm -hmm. grow up in an environment where they see so much hate and we have these conversations all the time because kids are like, why would someone do that yeah. just because they're Asian? Yeah. And that also shows a level of privilege that my children have because they they grow up in the Bay Area and they have a lot of Asian classmates. Hmm. But for those that may be in more isolated environments where they're the only Asian American child and people are making fun of them for their lunch, it could be very difficult. Even more difficult because mm -hmm. I still think people say really mean things, people even in the Bay Area, and there's been a lot of attacks here. But I really think that we need to be more kind to each other. It seems mm -hmm. so simple, but people just say the nastiest things and it's harmful. Do you see that with either the classmates of your kids or even just in general or the patients that you see? Have you been hearing more about this type of anti-Asian hate that's happening? One classmate for my youngest daughter made a little video about that. Of they said her joke looked weird and blue on it. And it's not like joke is weird here. Or I would say, let's delete weird. Let's say it's not uncommon. People eat joke here all the time. Mm. Versus if, again, if you're in a town with no Asian people, it might be something different. And they just don't know about it. But there's plenty of people that know about Jook, curry, <laughs> all those things. So it's these yeah. little microaggressions that happen. I had one of my mentors, I told you about that. I was an addiction therapist, had said, Oriental people. Wow. I turned to him and I was like, dude, what the F did you just say? We're that close. <laughs> and he was like, what? He was yeah. in his 60s. So that, that yeah. was like a very normalized word to him. And so when yeah. I explained the historical pieces of it and the racist mm -hmm. undertones to it, mm -hmm. he said, you should really present this to the team. And I did. Wow. But we have to make those decisions about teaching moments. And is it going to be internalized? Or am I going to have to have this fight or battle mm -hmm. where right. people aren't going to be receptive to it? So what I'm hearing is set more boundaries. <laughs> Definitely communicate them. Making sure that we have ourselves and give ourselves the space, that self-acceptance. And then educate. This is going to be a big part of it. Are there any other trends that you're seeing right now, especially around, you mentioned bullying or raising kids. What other things should parents watch out for, especially parents who want to do everything right and be able to take care of their kids, host a podcast, and also go to the BTS concert? Priorities. I said, hashtag priorities. I'm going to this concert. Makes sense. Uh, exactly. I come back to my clinical training. Really pay attention to your kids' mental health. Ask mm. them how their day is. Ask them what their favorite part of their day is. Maybe mm. what was something that wasn't so great. 
just having conversations with your kids can have a whole world of difference. The other thing is, I will say on air, I have a really hard time volunteering because it's not my thing. My mind changed when my coworker who has older children than me said, I used to sign up for every volunteer opportunity because uh-huh. I get to observe the kids. I get to see who their friends are, what they're mm. talking about. She made it sound like a spy. But I really have enjoyed those times and, again, changed my perspective. I'm really learning about my kid in a very different way than if I just asked them how their day went or how the event Mm. Showing up for them is so important. And I know as parents, even especially single parents, deserve medals, trophies. But try. Just try. Mm. And even if you can't really have conversations about how it went because it could go a long way. But one of the big things I really want to emphasize is suicide is a huge leading cause of death among Mm. the youth, adults, et cetera. And you should not suffer in silence if Mm. you are feeling anxious, depressed, suicidal. And we have to be very careful that we know what's going on with our kid Mm. emotions and mental health because we want to really reduce the risk that would be where they would go to, or even not just suicide, just self-harming behaviors. One of the more recent CDC's reports on leading causes of death found that actually for Asian Americans, I think it was 14 to 24, the leading cause of death was suicide. This was different from all the other groupings. And I remember hearing that and I was almost shocked. I had to go and look up the actual stats and read it and it absolutely was true. And it was the second leading cause of death for those, I think, age 24 to, I think, 34. Don't quote me on that, but go look at the study. We'll post it in the the show notes. It was a shock. Any advice? That's got to be a parent's worst nightmare to find out that their child was either self-harming or had even ideation. Try to approach it with curiosity. Again, I think I keep coming back to that and really look at your beliefs about mental health care. Someone had a cavity, you're not going to be like, just bear with it. (laughs) It hurts. (laughs) But whatever, you can have candy, (laughs) whatever. I liken it to the medical field again Mm -hmm. and finding and shopping around for a therapist that you feel approaches treatment in a culturally humble lens. And Mm -hmm. there's a difference between cultural competency and cultural humility. Cultural Mm -hmm. competency has really been emphasized. It almost feels like a checklist. Like you should know how to treat Asian Americans and how to treat Latinos or whatnot. But cultural humility is saying, I will never know about every single culture, every single group, every single person from various sexual orientations, religiosity, but I'm going to be curious and treat the person as an expert in their own experience. It's Mm. a mutually beneficial learning experience for both the therapist and the client sitting across from you. I love the sentence. It is such a big topic that has been coming up recently for me because so many people I do talk to is in that place. They're like trying to understand Asian Americans, but dude, I don't understand. Such a huge group of people. There's so many differences and histories. And I've never met somebody who I could really say is you can be a true expert because what even defines Asian America? As you said before, there's Indian and then there's a universe of cultures and backgrounds and experiences. Languages. 
Oh, languages, practices, beliefs. So I think the way you put that, I love that, which is treat the person that you're talking to is that you're the expert. I don't need to be the expert, but let me have in the cultural humility and curiosity to understand that. Thank you for that. In the book that you're working on, and I mean, whatever you're comfortable sharing, but I'm so happy that we could talk about this that you're working through. Are there any kind of like frameworks that you're working through to help parents understand this? Because let's be fair, let's be honest here. I know you're coming and you're saying that you're 20 seconds away from, but you got a lot that you've got down. Dude, if she is going through messiness, I'm not sure I'm. <laughs> That's a really great point. Yes. Emphasize a lot of the things that we've talked about. And even the very messy times, how mm -hmm. I have mother's guilt and passing up maybe some opportunities. I think you've seen a lot of people on social media going to that White House event. And my thought was like, White House event or open house mm -hmm. at the schools. I chose open house because I will never be able to go back in time and see my kids' classrooms. Sure, you could Zoom me and stuff like that. But like my mom or my husband can Zoom me in, but they will remember that I went to their open house. Whereas I would be in a sea of people that I'm sure I'd make meaningful connections and I have friends that went, but again, goes back to value. What's mm -hmm. the priority right now? That's huge. I love that. Do you have a golden rule or golden rules that you oftentimes hold on to in your beliefs? Aside from some of the stuff you share, like priorities, like focusing. You can cut me looking to the right because I want to emphasize that I read Mark Randolph's book, That Will Never Work, about founding Netflix. He talks about his golden rules mm. and our ways of operating. I think in addition to all the things that I said, I would say, one, don't ask people to do things that you wouldn't do yourself. This mm. is more from a managerial learning that I've come to because a lot of times people that work with supervisors and bosses that tell them to do things that you're like, person has no clue how to do this. That's why they're asking me. And so really to build trust with people, you have to be able to show that you would take that responsibility on. It's just more, I need help. I would say, don't be afraid to tell people when you've made mistakes. Mm. Again, in a managerial position, the person with the most power should be the most vulnerable first when mm. you're having conversations about mistakes, because then it gives people permission to then talk about how they messed up and that my boss is talking about it. Why do I need to hide it? And that's why it's so important to me to talk about these stories and self-advocacy and things like that, because being to be vulnerable is a key part of building relationships. I think the golden rule is people need people mm -hmm. cannot do it alone, no matter how much we are programmed to take on everything. And it doesn't have to be a partner that's part of your community start networking and building relationships with other parents. It's those fireside chats, so to speak, or you're at an event and you're like, holy cow, it was so hard to get here this morning. Or this is, I don't know how you shuttle people from practice to practice. Trust me, even though, like you said, people are like, oh my God, how can I do it if she doesn't? When you really open yourself and talk to people about hmm, things right. that will all disappear. Hmm. They won't look at you as above them or anything. And I guess back to that, like you don't have to present this perfect looking life all the time on social media, hmm. really have boundaries for yourself about social comparison. And hmm. 
it will always look more glamorous. I'm like, when people mm -hmm. post all these things, I'm like, but what did it really take for you to get there? And even wake up to take that photo shoot. <laughs> like, <laughs> you probably are up at 4 a.m. Yeah. having bags under your eyes and yeah. having to do all these face masks. Exactly. I'll that. <laughs> One more thing is really prioritize your mental health just as much as you value your physical health because they're mm. so interrelated. Mm. And again, I liken it to the medical field. You wouldn't go up to an OBGYN, just any OBGYN and start talking yeah. about your issues. Same with therapists. Really find someone that you feel comfortable with. And just because mm. you go to one and don't feel comfortable doesn't mean that therapy or help is not for you. I love that. And that's such a key thing. In my personal experience, I love therapy. I think I feel like I talk about this four times a week because I'm such a big believer in it. And I think I went to five different therapists before I found one that I was like, yes, this is working and being okay with that. I think that's such a, a challenging thing for a lot of people. And they don't realize that they think that therapy is one thing and one size yeah. at all. So didn't work the first time they're gone. So go and explore that. This is my favorite question, which is what question do you wish people would ask you more often? Are you 25? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I, that was my joke answer when I was coming up and looking at the questions. But my real uh, answer is, how do I become a psychologist? And uh, I really think that if more Asian Americans can come up to me and approach me and ask me that question, that means they're slightly interested in it. And uh, I have to tell people it's a viable career option. We need therapists of color more than oh, ever sure. right now. Oh. And we need to see us represented. And I say mm. us collectively. Again, I'm not going to erase that everyone has individual experiences, but we need to see faces that look like us, not only in media. I think that's yeah. so key and important, but also in our providers. There's a sense of trust that happens with many when they see themselves reflected in their provider. It's not to say therapist matches everything. However, if you can relate to your therapist, it may help with engagement and sticking with it and reduce early termination. I think one of the biggest challenges to the mental health industry is that many people think that AI can solve the major issue. I don't want to make your head explode because there's so many things and controversy around that. And I'm sure uh -huh. we could probably go back and forth for hours. But I want to say that AI cannot take over human interaction when you're in a therapy situation. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I think I had a conversation with a friend about this. And it's a funny thing. I think that because they're hearing or reading about stories of, oh, there's somebody who was in a relationship and she had nobody to talk to. So then she went to AI and has someone <laughs> I, to talk to. It's not funny, like, but I think like people what? are extrapolating this to... <laughs> I remember when I was hearing about that, I was like, this is ridiculous. How can you replace seeing the to understanding tonality, subtlety, context, the tiny little things? Because a single pause after a question and what that pause could mean, what that breath of knowing of could represent, none of that can be conveyed. But I absolutely, we're living in a strange transitional time yes. right now where AI is yes. everywhere. So I definitely think that's something we got to start talking more about i love that final question are you 25 <laughs> see this is why you're good at your situation <laughs> here no it's korean skincare seriously time. people if you're listening to this on audio check it on youtube because <laughs> man 
That is an absolutely relevant question. For listeners who want to find out more about you or work with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, the podcast is colorofsuccesspodcast.com. You can find all of our socials, all of the episodes there. There's tons of content there, which includes our YouTube channel. And drstephaniejwong.com is the private practice. But I am full for, and I have been for a little bit, but I do have great resources, referrals. I have some friends that have just opened up their private practice that are fantastic. I would send my family members there if I needed. So that's my list is, and my metric of like, when people ask, would I really send a loved one over to that person? So I don't just give random recommendations (laughs) because my practice is full. So please feel free to reach out to me. And if you want, you know, that to ask me that question about what is it what do you have to do to become a psychologist? I'd be mm-hmm. more than happy to answer that question. Amazing. For newbie listeners, do you have an episode that you're like, go, if there's a one episode you want to start with or just go and Google, is there one episode you usually recommend? Wow. If you're looking clinically, since we talked about the risk of suicide, there is right. a suicide prevention and assessment with Dr. Tate Welzo. And that I think it's in season three or whatnot. And a very interesting one for folks is a episode on needle phobia. Oh, wow. And it's very interesting because a lot of people think that people are not getting vaccinated because they're anti-vaxxers. That's some people, but there are a lot of people that are afraid of needles. And so this protocol of being able to have exposure therapy to help people combat this so that they can get the needed care and immunizations Mm -hmm. was just such a really interesting topic. And then if you're really into entertainment and kind of want a fan person, there's partner track cast, Margaret (laughs) Cho, all those. I joked with my mom and Margaret that like, oh, I think my mom's finally proud of me because I'm interviewing you. (laughs) My mom's proud of me. My mom and I have such a cool relationship, but I, it was like, just one of those situations where you oh, actually, she's old school. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much once again for being on the show, Dr. Stephanie Wong. Go check out her show and we'll make sure to have all those links in our show notes there. And once again, thank you so much for your time. As Asian Americans, we are as strong as our collective community. So if there's something that you found valuable in this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media. And if you like the show, leave us a review and send us a screenshot and you might win some big Asian energy merch, which we give out every month so you can go out there and own your big Asian energy.